0: Forletta investigates. Hello, everyone. Thank you for a great season of Forletta Investigates. We'll be back for season two in October of 2021 with many more great guests within law enforcement. I want to thank the many heroes who were guests on our show. If you missed any of our shows, you can go back and listen to all of them anytime on your favorite podcast app or head over to our website at www.fcis.com llc.com the purpose of our show is to give you insight in what our law enforcement people do every day for our community and our country here is one of the great interviews in case you missed it see you in october i want to welcome our guest and i'm fortunate to have him on our podcast He's one of the DEA legends responsible for bringing one of the world's most powerful money laundering operations of the Medellin and Kelly cartels from the country of Columbia. Please welcome former DEA agent, Robert Mazur. Bob, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing fine, and thanks so much for the
0: invitation. So just a little bit about Bob. Uh, Bob has a 27-year career. Uh, he's worked in several other different federal agencies and his last agency that he worked for was uh, for DEA. Um, and I always mention, and I believe you will agree, Bob, that the success of DEA uh, and their agents really go unherald, especially in these types of cases that you've been involved.
1: Yeah. And I tell you, if you look at what the DEA's initiative is uh, within SOD uh, over the last five or six years, it's amazing. Um, the accomplishments uh, that, that those men and women have achieved?
0: So Bob has exposed uh, international banks that and businesses that were actually catering to the cartels. They were money laundering trillions of dollars annually. Uh, Bob is, is also the uh, New York Times bestselling author of his book called The Infiltrator. Uh, there was also a movie about Bob. Uh, he has appeared on many major ne- news networks and over 1500 radio and TV stations. So Bob, please tell our listeners how you began uh, working these uh, money laundering investigations. Sure. Um, you know, I, I got into law enforcement,
1: um, I guess, literally by accident. It was uh, hard times during college and uh, needed to find a way to make uh, enough money to uh, to cover some additional of the uh, expenses there. So I, I I went to a job board and I and, um, and found this co-op position in a, a thing called the IRS intelligence division. Uh, I had no idea what it was. And I was, uh, on my way to becoming a CPA <laughs> and, and business administration finance major. And when I got there, I came to learn about the famous story of how they helped get uh, the case against Al Capone. And while I was there, they were working closely with DEA and other agencies. Um, on, on a guy by the name of Frank Lucas in New York, a heroin trafficker, probably the biggest heroin trafficker in New York, I'm sure at the time. Oh yeah. Well known. Yeah. So, um, but the guys in, in IRS were working on the bank side of it and, and, um, appropriately enough, the bank that was laundering money for him was called the chemical bank. And, and, uh, we, we did surveillances and, and, um, the guys actually documented, uh, Lucas's guys walking into the bank with duffel bags full of cash. And, 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 and it just grabbed me to see the massive amount of money that the guys at the top were getting and how it had such a major impact on organized crimes survival. That was it. I was hooked. Um, I, I was hooked on the money side at that stage Uh, I worked in Manhattan for a while, and then I got transferred uh, because my wife got very sick after our first uh, child was born, and I got moved to Florida. And when I was in Florida, I mean, dope dealers were as common as palm trees. I mean, they were everywhere. (laughs) And I I started working on a task force that um, was a combination of IRS and customs uh, called Operation Greenback, and that's all they did was focus on the money launderers. And um, I got an opportunity to go over to customs, and I did. And I'll tell you, one of the things that really, for me, made a difference, and, and I worry about some of our brothers and sisters on the front lines in DEA because I don't think they get the advantage of this. Now, there's a lot of people who do undercover that aren't as needy as I am <laughs> in, in making sure that I know uh, a lot about that, what I consider to be a science. But I went through undercover schools at IRS and Customs. And for me, they were lifesavers. For me, they opened my eyes to the science of how one needed to go about to very meticulously put together backstopping uh, for an undercover operation. And that's critical in trying to be able to work the money side. Because unless you want to just be doing pickups, um, and then converting it to wire transfers and trying to figure out through transactions and talking with brokers who's behind the scenes. In order to really infiltrate them, they have to be able to really look at your background and be convinced that you're safe to talk with. And and I got that luxury um, on the first operation that turned into the book, The Infiltrator, while I was a customs agent. And then in a the second one, um, in an undercover operation while I was a DEA agent for two and a half years operating in uh, Florida and in Panama, working with uh, money brokers and drug traffickers aligned with the Cali cartel. But one of the things that you know I, I, I like to say about uh, big cases sometimes, uh, first of all, it was a, a total and complete team, con- team effort. Uh, at the height of the operation and the infiltrator, there were probably 250 or so law enforcement officers, uh, intelligence analysts, prosecutors, um, administrative people all over the world who were working on it. And absent their, uh, collective work, I, I wouldn't have gotten the plane off the ground. Uh, there, there's no way you can do these things, sure. um, individually. And, um, and so with that team type effort, um, we were able to put together in the infiltrator story, something that I think is a little different. I'm not so sure given legal reviews today, um, that you might not be able to do this, but I was infiltrated. I was embedded in real businesses. So I had three really good CIs and you know, CIs are, are, that's another topic we should talk about while we're, while we're doing this show, but, um, you know, they are, if not handled properly, right. probably the biggest, um, risk to a law enforcement officer's career, uh, personal life, uh, and freedom. Right. Um, we've all witnessed it. Um, and I, I, when I get the opportunity to share time with law enforcement agencies, I, I do a, uh, a, a segment called the slippery slope, talking about the Best practices of managing informants and the consequences of not uh, using those best practices. But what I, with the informants that I had in the infiltrator story, we had two guys who were formally within um, one of the five Italian American organized crime families. One guy was kind of a a very sophisticated uh, businessman, and the other guy was a bone crusher. Um, and then we had an informant in Colombia who was running an import export business who had grown up with um, some of the leaders of the Medellin cartel, uh, including several members of the Ochoa family. So we, we were able to, with that, then get, I had 18 months. I put together the backstopping for this fictional character, Robert Musella. But by the time that I got done, um, I was embedded in real businesses, investment company, mortgage brokerage business, a jewelry chain with 30 locations on the east coast. We had a private air charter service and thanks to customs, a uh, a Cessna 2 citation uh, that we were able to use. I was embedded in a brokerage firm as a part of that company. And because of the fact that these were real businesses and the lights didn't go out when the bad guys left town, I think we were able to really gain a lot of credibility. So much so I mean, I, the highest level guy I dealt with uh, in the Medellin cartel was somebody that nobody had heard of before, a lawyer, um, a professor at the University of Medellin, a guy who dealt closely with the Colombian Senate that and controlled payoffs uh, to them, a guy by the name of Santiago Uribe, who really was the principal consigliere to Pablo Escobar. Um, he was the man who, Um, wrote a paper that led to the um, termination of the extradition treaty with the United States with the um, lying claim (laughs) that for drug traffickers to be extradited from Colombia to the United States and prosecuted there would be a violation of Colombian sovereignty. And so they should be charged only in, in Colombia. I hate to say it, but history's repeated itself because we just heard that these last several months with the Mexican government who convinced the Department of Justice to release and drop the charges against former Mexican uh, General uh, Sinfuegos, who was the Minister of Defense and worked within the uh, one of the Mexican cartels, uh, exposing informants, uh, giving all types of protection, helping him with smuggling routes. So, um, I'd say the highest people that I met with besides Santiago, uh, Uribe was another guy who portrayed in the movie is played by Benjamin Bratt, a, uh, a guy by the name of Roberto El Caeno, who was a transporter, um, and distributor, uh, one of the bigger ones in the United States. And really, I think winning him over was the door opener, uh, to many, many people within the, uh, within the Medellin cartel. Um, and the other high guy that I, you know, one of the guys who was a client of mine was a guy by the name of Gerardo Moncada. Gerardo Moncada at the time, again, not really well known in law enforcement circles was, and this, because this is like the late 1980s, he didn't really surface by, in everybody's eyes until the early nineties. And, um, he was managing 60% of Escobar's routes. Um, he, he, uh, unfortunately suffered a very famous death, uh, when Pablo Escobar, uh, suspected that he and another guy who was also a client of mine, um, by the name of Fernando Galeano, uh, that they were stealing money, that they were not paying the sufficient war tax they were supposed to pay. So, um, Escobar summoned them both before him at the cathedral, his self-made jail and there are different accounts by different people who were there but one of the people who i think is very reliable um reported to the ea that uh, these guys were tortured for two days they were hung by their feet their clothes were stripped off and blowtorches were used to melt the skin off their bodies then they were chopped up and then they were turned into ash nobody's ever found them their siblings were some of their siblings were murdered uh, about 19 other members of the cartel loyal to them were found in short order. Uh, their bodies were thrown around the uh, Medellin and Escobar began the internal cleansing that led to his demise because that effort to internally cleanse the cartel led to the survivors of that becoming Los Pepes mm. and becoming the vigilante group that ultimately helped him to be tracked down and, and killed. Um, Talking about banks, um, I, I always say it's better to be lucky than good. And in that instance, I was lucky because I'd like to say that there was some great plan that we had to infiltrate BCCI. But what really happened is the Medellin cartel guys were a little nervous about some of my US dollar accounts I was paying out with because they were um, based in US banks and they wanted me to open up banks in Panama. And they told me, listen, we have full protection. We've got Ma- uh, Manuel Noriega in our pocket. Um, as long as the dollar accounts are in Panama, uh, you, know, we're, you know, we're, gonna, we're gonna keep moving forward. So I happened to be driving down um, a street called Ashley Drive in Tampa, which is kind of like Brickell Avenue in Miami. And um, there was this big gold sign they should have never spent that much money on signs, but it caught my attention, and it said Bank of Credit and Commerce International (BCCI), and I thought, well, you know what? I'd bet you they have branches outside the United States. And um, so my office at the time wanted to do the typical thing: oh, let's get in touch with security at such and such bank, and we'll we'll get a, a Panamanian account. I said, no, man. I, I've I've spent years putting this front together. Why don't I do the same thing that private client division uh, account holders do? I'll call the bank. I'll ask for a meeting and um, I'll see if they can open up an account. And I was given the authority to do that. I went, well, I called and they said, you know, if you want a meeting, we need several things from you. We need your resume. We need three bank references, three business references and copies of your bank accounts to show you have a million in play. If that's the case, we'll talk with you about opening up accounts. I did. I gave him the documentation. I got the meeting. I sat down with the guy and I said, "Um, I'm a financial advisor. All of my clients are based in Medellin, Colombia. Um, We have a need to assist them, to help them to move capital across borders. They have business activities here in the States that create huge amounts of capital. And it's my responsibility to help them very quietly move that money across borders. And he said to me, um, and I said, you know, we need to move some money from Panama into the States to buy some property. And he said, well, do you have needs to take money out? I said, yeah. He goes, is it cash? I said, yeah. Yeah. He said, well, that's the black market. We have many clients who are involved in that. We used to recommend that they open accounts with us in Grand Cayman, but there's a treaty now between Grand Cayman and the United States. I knew that treaty. It was recently passed at the time and had to do with the requirement by the Cayman government to turn over bank records if it related to drug trafficking. They said, you know, we really recommend Panama now so we can help you to open up the accounts. I had some great teachers in the undercover schools, um, um, including Joe Pistone, the former FBI agent to the book, uh, Donnie Brasco and the movie Donnie Brasco is based on. And one of the things I was taught was, you know, if you're handed that home run, don't act so anxious to run with it, play hard to get for a while. So I said to the guy, you know, I looked him right in the eyes, I said, you know, I don't really know you. and this is very, very sensitive business. So let's take the time to get to know one another. I think at this stage, I'll just open up uh, a domestic checking account here in Tampa and I'll put some money in a CD. But how about if we go to lunch a few times and how about if I have a friend of mine, now this was an unwitting source, became a defendant in the case. Mm -hmm. He was a money launderer for Medellin. I said, how about if I have a friend of mine who works closely with me on these matters, come from Medellin. We'll have lunch a few times, get to know one another. And once we know fully what we can do for each other, we can really do some big stuff. And he said, I said, that's a great idea. So, uh, so then I got the bad guy to come up, you know, it's hard for an agent to play the role of um, a uh, import export business owner from Medellin who's really involved in the drug business Um, when they checked this guy out, they knew for sure that he really did have a business in Medellin. And if you've ever spoken or heard Spanish spoken by people from Antioquia, um, and especially Medellin, there's certain words and, and, and dialect types that, that make it clear.
0: And, um, those were all sellers. Sure. You know? Well, let me ask you something. So now that, you know, you've got yourself in this, um, undercover role in his position. Uh, I'm sure that the cartels were checking you out as well. And I know that you mentioned that you had this great uh, plan to to cover yourself, but then you go back to New York a little bit and you got some associates with these mob guys. So how did that all come together in terms of actually protecting your identity? Sure. Um, one of the things
1: that I did Okay, we'll go back to Roberto El Cayeno. Roberto El would always tell me, I mean, he was polite, and I did little business with him. But he was always telling me, "Hey, you know, we're we're going to be able to do big stuff. I'm going to start giving you no less than quarter of a million at a shot. We'll do five a week, blah 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 blah." And you know, it it just wasn't happening. And um, so this bone breaker, and you know, most of us who have good informants. Uh, probably prosecuted those guys <laughs> and they came to realize that you were a, uh, an honest person. You were doing your job. They paid their price. And when they got out, they had an interest in trying to join the good guy side. And this guy was, was that he had been a bodyguard for a capo. And, um, so when Roberto Caeno met him and I, I brought him to a lunch, not to do anything. I said, you know, Hey Alex, listen, um, just, I just want these guys to see you, okay? So, why don't you come to the restaurant, to apologize for uh, interrupting, tell me you have something important to tell me about, uh, just do your thing, <laughs> and um, and 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 we'll we'll run with it. So he comes into the restaurant. He's got this armful of shirts and uh, suntan products. And he goes, boss, boss, I got to talk to you about something, but, um, Hey, hey, look at the, check out the shirts. You know, we got the, the suntan lotion business off the ground. And, and, um, uh, so, but, uh, I said, well, let me introduce you to a good friend of mine uh, from LA, Roberto. And he meets him and we talk a little bit Then we get away from the table. He leaves, I come back. And, uh, Roberto goes, he looks at me, he goes, let me guess. He's born in Brooklyn. He's Sicilian. And he started stealing cars at age 13. And I said, you know, R- Roberto, you almost got it right. He started at 12. <laughs> he, <Yeah. laughs> he was a big sell. Uh, and it's a good thing because we, uh, we came to learn that Roberto's uh, guys in Chicago were making phone calls on a repeated basis to pay phones um, that were around my undercover business. Um, there was constantly... Uh, tests that were being made. Roberto uh, tested me one time. He, he said, uh, well, uh, we're going to be doing this deal is going to be X dollars. Of course, it was $40,000 short. And he started to push toward me and go, you know, it's your guys' fault. You guys lost it. I said, listen, Roberto, um, I'm telling you what it is. If you don't think you can trust me, let's not do business together. But it was that's what the freaking problem was. And there's no way on earth that I'm picking up because your guys counted the money wrong. It's just not going to happen. So many times people try when they're doing undercover, they feel like they have to please the bad guy, uh, which is the worst thing that they could ever possibly do. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the first tests, um, and it's in the movie, uh, I'm with the money broker from Medellin and we're, we're at a men's club. And, um, he, <laughs> after we're talking for a while, he, he comes over and he's got two dancers, one under each arm. And he goes, Mr. Bob, um, this one's for you. And we've arranged the room upstairs for you. And so I took him aside and I, now the, I, I knew right from the beginning that they were going to try to compromise me. So I had my shtick ready for what it was going to, what I was going to be saying, but when I came back to him and I said, um, listen, I'm 36 years old. I'm an Italian American. I have no kids. I've never been married. I'm engaged. If you know anything about Italians, I can't screw this up. So that's one thing. But number two, the people I work with are people I grew up with all my life because my story to them was I'm working for a mob group here and they've given me authority to check the Latin American markets to see how profitable it might be. But my main shtick is for my people who are here and I'm not going to do anything to screw it up. And I said, you know, they trust me, but if they see anything that causes them to think that I'm not under control, if I, if I, it's like asking your doctor to, to do drugs before they wind mm. up uh, doing an operation on you. I'm in charge of millions and millions, tens of millions of dollars for these people. If they think that there's anything that uh, I'm doing that could potentially compromise me, I'm dead and you're not worth it. So you're either going to do things my way or, you know, I'll take into consideration some of your needs, but you got to realize I've got a main job and you're the the future, but I'm not going to mess up what I have. So with that I pretty much could deflect a lot of the stuff that um, might be coming at me. And anybody who's going to do long-term undercover needs to be thinking about those things before they find themselves in a position where somebody feels as though that they can try to uh, talk them into uh, doing something that later on you're going to have to admit to before a jury.
0: Well, and and speaking of of juries and uh, in terms of supervision, Um, because you have access to millions and millions of dollars. Um, I would take it that you would have some responsible uh, agents that you worked with that would oversee or handle some of the issues uh, that you had to deal with.
1: Absolutely. Um, I rarely was present when money was delivered. And I told them, listen, no, that's for the guys in T-shirts, man. Uh, I'm not taking those kind of risks. Although I did concede once or twice to take uh, to take some cash from a very very trusted client that insisted that that be done, and there was a reason for doing that. But um, first of all, the money would be immediately. Oh, and let me let me get into this. One of the things that the bad guys realize is that the only people who need four days or so to pay out on a pickup is the government. Because really good bad guys have pool of money and pay within 24 hours, the majority of the money. So we set up a system. I got a $5 million uh, float from the government to be able to put into accounts now this didn't happen right away but once they knew that we were with the the biggest of the big guys we were able to get that but okay a pickup g- gets done unfortunately it's got to go and be counted at that local office immediately now some things have changed there have t- been times when i've seen agencies say no let's just seal up the bag take it to the bank and let the bank do the count because you know darn well that if we do the count even with the with all the greatest honesty in the world, it's it's a lot of cash <laughs> and people make yeah. mistakes. Bills stick together. But I, I think it is smarter to, to just uh, wrap it up and right. get it to the bank and let the bank make the count. Um, and, and then once the money is in the account, then that money has to go through. It can't just come back to me. It's got to be divided. There's going to be a profit that's going to have to go into um, a a government account where undercover proceeds are put. And then there's going to be an account where trafficker funds go into. And then from there, the trafficker funds came back to my account. And then from there, I made distribution based upon the instructions that I got from the clients. That's hard to do in four days. And what we did that got us around it, and it's something I think we should standardly do, we had five million dollars of of uh, government funds. I was permitted once the count was done by the bank, which we could get done the next day um, or maybe at two um, we We were authorized to pay out seventy five percent from the account that had the government funds. so eventually those government funds were reimbursed from the trafficker account because 75% of it didn't need to go to the trafficker. So that went there and then we evened up the last 25% um, within a week of when the transaction was done. That made them very big believers in me because I could almost immediately pay out and they know that the government standardly doesn't do that. So for those guys and gals who are going to do this type of stuff, you really need to come up with a way to, to outthink them, um, and not get branded with that government banner. And, and, you know, some people might say, well, if they know you're the government, they're not going to launder through you. Yes, they will. If they feel that they can determine when your, your undercover operation may end and they stay far enough away from that end, some of these brokers are willing to actually let the money go through. Now, DEA has a policy or had a policy where every third pickup, you had a rip. Well, I was always opposed to that (laughs) because you've got this undercover operation trying to win credibility. You don't want to lose, you want to get in and out of laundering money for the cartel as quickly as you can. You're facilitating crime by laundering the money. So the more you show detriment of believability to your undercovers, You better be able to pull that, those seizures off in a way where you're not going to put the spotlight on your undercover operation. I can't tell you how many times I got the scary call from Medellin that said, Gerardo Moncada says you must be a DEA undercover agent. They had counter surveillance out there. They saw all the feds. Here's what they were looking like. Here's what cars they had. And now I have to talk my myself out of that. Um, we had some very aggressive surveillances that were done, especially in New York, um, where, you know, I, 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 I have a meeting with Roberto. Roberto says, listen, make sure you have some people out there watching to make sure Los Feos, the feds aren't there. Los Feos is the ugly ones. And, and um, he goes, this is what you got to look for. Most of the time... They look like gringos. They're probably in their late twenties, maybe about their late twenties. They're in good shape. They have pullover uh, shirts with collars. They wear blue. They wear jeans. Uh, at the time, uh, re- Reeboks. They're going to have fanny packs, uh, and that's where their guns are. That's what you need to be looking for. So I go to New York, and I'm sitting down. And I rarely, rarely would go into uh, a government office, but I went in to try to share some of the concerns about counter-surveillance. And I walk in a room full of gringos who are in about 28 years old with pullover shirts and collars and, and jeans <laughs> and Reeboks. <laughs> yeah. And I said, you know, guys, it's like you're wearing a uniform. Ah, uh, You're not, you know, you might've been born in New York, but you know, you don't know how things work here and blah, 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 blah. And, and Hey, you know, we have fiefdoms in these offices and they in their heart of hearts are going to do the thing that they think is most important for the success of the priorities of that office. And it's, sometime you can get, you know, some medium ground, but, sure. but sometimes you can't and you've got to do your best, uh, to try to, to get around those, those problems. Um, you know, getting back to the bank thing, because I want to make sure that I cover this, um, after the guy in Tampa um, and we eventually got the Panama accounts, like I said before, luck is better than uh, being good. Um, the US administration got into a big fight with Noriega and froze all US dollar accounts of the Central Bank of Panama at the Fed. So everybody's drug money came to a screeching halt. Um, Just before that happened, I talked to the guy in Panama. I said, hey, listen, you're in Panama. I'm here. The Americans are all over Noriega's butt. Um, If I have a problem, I'm not picking up a phone and talking to you in detail about what issues we have. Do you work with anybody here in the States that I can meet with if we have an emergency? Oh, yeah, there's two guys in Miami. He introduces me to them, and I meet these guys. And this is an interesting thing. When you start getting to the upper echelons of the private client divisions of banks, and believe me, BCCI was not um, a one-off. BCCI and the way they operated is the way that unfortunately, in my view, uh, a good percentage of the international banking communities, private client divisions and correspondent banking divisions uh, operate on assessing risk with whether or not they're going to deal with people who have hot money. So one of the guys I meet... His father is the retired, but head of the national police in Pakistan, formerly ran the ISI. He has clients, including uh, at the time, uh, President Zia of Pakistan. He's tight with the CIA. He's managing accounts for them. Um, He's tight with the cartels. And it was an interesting thing that I saw at the Latin American division of BCCI, where there were links to not just the underworld, not just drug trafficking, but the intelligence community, and unfortunately, the political world, um, not just outside the United States, but inside the United States as well. Um, so when I get to meet these guys and I'm dealing with them in Miami, then the Panamanian accounts get frozen of, of the country of Panama. I come back to them and I go, hey, guys. Um, Panama is no more. Uh, what, what is everybody turning to? And they go, well, we have guys on our team in Europe. Um, we can set up meetings for you. And I meet a guy in London. I meet three guys in Paris. I eventually meet a guy in the Bahamas who's the branch manager there. Uh, I'm dealing with people at the board level of the bank, all of whom I have on tape with conversations, admitting that they know that this, this money Uh, is generated from the sale of cocaine by the Medellin cartel. Um, That was the foundation of the prosecution of about a dozen officers at the bank, as well as a lot of traffickers. Um, But it was also the evidence that was used to sustain an indictment of the bank to which they pled guilty and which ultimately led to the demise of the bank itself.
0: Well, let me ask you this. So uh, how long was your role as somebody that worked deep undercover?
1: Well, two operations. Um, one was two years. The other one was two and a half years.
0: Okay. And so, what was your biggest challenges? So, you know, you you played this role of this mob guy, this major money launder for the cartel. But how did you turn the switches off and on? Well,
1: one of the things, and and, and that's a great question because one of the things we don't want to do is we don't want to pick up money from the same people over and over again and send it to the same places. Because all we're doing is facilitating crime. And so in those types of instances, I would just tell them, for example, in LA, listen, it's getting too hot there. Uh, The cops are cowboys. Uh, I'm not taking any more money in LA. Or Mm -hmm. the last time we picked up from these people, uh, I had people out on the street. We were a little nervous about some of the things that we saw. Um, I tried my best to make sure that we continually learned new facts from what we mm-hmm. were doing. The thing that really hurt us the most um, in that first operation is uh, a situation that arose a couple of burn surveillances followed by the seizure uh, in Detroit of about 110 kilos of coke that was… they. They did something really foolish, I think, the Medellin cartel in Detroit. They had two guys who they were receiving uh, about 110 kilos at a shot from 18 wheelers that were coming up from Miami. Um, They were the guys who sold it uh, to some Iraqis, uh, and they were the guys who handled the money. Usually, you want to keep the money and the dope separate, but the only person um, on the money side that had been dealing with them was my undercover partner. Um, when those guys went down, um, I didn't know this, but the agents in Detroit had filed an affidavit for, uh, clone pagers, um, and were working toward, uh, a title three to that completely exposed our undercover operation. Mm. And I was never told. Um, we had a plan and the plan was, we know, we knew the 18 wheeler that was leaving Miami. The plan was when it gets to the way station, uh, at the Florida, Georgia border, we were going to try to have the, the highway patrol have a dog alert, um, and seize it and, you know, work from there. Um, it's so important to work closely with other agencies, um, to build China walls between the intelligence that you develop and to have enforcement actions taken so that you do as much as you can to disrupt their operations. At the same time, you're trying to identify as best you can command and control and assets. So unfortunately, when they didn't stop that truck on the heels of two surveillances getting burned, And I get the call, well, my partner got the call with Moncada screaming in the background. Um, I asked for a meeting with uh, one of Moncada's really trusted guys who he thought in his mind had become a friend of mine. Um, He was an interesting guy himself. Uh, His name was Rudolf Armbrecht, uh, a Colombian German who was a former Avianca pilot flying his things like 747s. And his job was to buy uh, Rockwell 1000s in the United States for Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel to basically equip the cartel with their own air force. He uh, modified them. He did all kinds of things. And he was very trusted by Moncada. So I asked um, my contact agent, because th- that's the way we uh, operated. And when I, if I was in Miami... I would stay in touch with the contact agent, let him know what was going on. Um, I would mostly do that by pay phones. And, and I begged him, Mike a- uh, uh, Atri, Matt Atri. Yeah, that's his name. Matt Atri. I begged him. I said, Matt, listen, um, if we have surveillance and they pick up on this surveillance, I'm getting a one-on-one meeting with Rudy Armbrecht. And um, it's going to be at this hotel in this room And I'll have my cell phone and I'm asking you guys to stay back, way back, and call me occasionally, do whatever. Um, If I say so-and-so, you know, that's a danger word, you need to come. We worked it out so that there was no tight surveillance. And I left my briefcase recorder in the car when I first got to the hotel. I hoped that Rudy was the only one in the room. Uh, he was, um, we met for a little while and he said, well, where are the papers from that, uh, offshore corporation, you know, the amendments that I asked for. Um, and I said, oh, they're in my briefcase. I forgot that the outside. So I brought the briefcase in and it, it had a, uh, <sighs> this is old time stuff, man. It had a, <laughs> it had a nagra hidden yeah. in the, in the top of it and nagra's weighed about 3 pounds you know they were yeah. they, they were great recording but um they they were pretty big yep. so uh, it was hidden inside a hidden compartment in the lid and uh, he kept staring at that briefcase as we were talking and and i picked the briefcase up and i folded it toward him so he only saw the back of it i had previously told the it people uh the tech people that the velcro had been problematic and had let loose a few times and i was assured it was fixed and i opened up the uh the briefcase and the velcro let loose the nagra fell into the body of the briefcase uh, along with a nest uh, of wires and i tried to not look like my hair was on fire as i uh put put the stuff back together again and he kept waiting like where's the papers where's the papers and um I just got it closed. He stood up and came around and would have seen it if I hadn't gotten it back in. And and I gave him the papers. And um, that was probably the closest to uh, uh, other than something that happened in the second operation, where unfortunately, we like to think that this never happens. We have to have faith in our brothers and sisters in law enforcement. But there are times when some fall victim. Um, to the slippery slope, and um, a task force officer assigned to work with me, undercover in in the second and the DEA long term undercover, unbeknownst to me, um, was already corrupt for a few years before he was assigned to work with me, um, and he outed me to the leaders of the Cali cartel. Um, I in that operation. And I'm not sure this is the case, but I was told at the time that when I was allowed to go undercover in Colombia, that it had been the first time in eight years that that had been allowed. It probably happens a lot now. Um, but um, I was, so I was working undercover in Panama and in
0: Colombia um, and in other countries, and they knew who the hell I was. I was just going to ask you that. So you had to get permission from the host country. Uh, to to work in this undercover role, uh, working these traffickers. True. Um, in Panama,
1: we got lucky. The attorney general at the time claimed, and I don't think that that really was the case, but he claimed that he decided that he had the authority because he was in charge of all drug investigations in his country, that he had no responsibility to report to the president that we were working covertly in Panama and he would not report that. Um, some of the people that I dealt with undercover in Panama by a, a lawyer who, a dirty lawyer, um, who was playboy of the century in Panama was had a quite a very strong relationship with the daughter of the president. <laughs> and um, it would have been a big problem if, um, so I, I can only hope and imagine that the attorney general kept his word on that, but yeah, we had to. And, and in Colombia, at that stage, now we're talking 1992, 90, Yeah. 92. Well, it was the year that uh, Pablo was killed. So by then there were uh, Colombian police who were heavily vetted, that were trusted, that were working closely with DEA. Um, Something that had been achieved, I think, because everybody was fed up with the bombing and with the craziness of of Pablo Escobar. So yeah, they they knew. Um, But little did I know that two of the targets that I went there to meet knew Uh, that I was a DEA agent. Um, and matter of fact, I, uh, after that trip, I met with one of them in Panama and we found out from witnesses later that I was three minutes from getting whacked. Um, he had told them if the meeting went any longer than, um, a set time that DEA had him in custody and they were to come and free him. And, um, we got that from a female who was very, very close to him, who, um, I have every reason to believe was accurate in that. So, um, but you know, a lot of the, a lot of the dangers we, we face, um, are come about really, uh, I think if we're, if we're not totally prepared, you know, I do a thing on, uh, a presentation for law enforcement on persuasion and negotiation. It's a, probably a couple hour presentation. And really I walk people through about 10 different things that if you are going to try to maximize your ability to persuade and negotiate with someone you should follow, you know, one of the first things is that you need to care enough about your success with your target's audience to do your homework. You've got, uh, before I met Roberto El Caeno, I knew that he was an, uh, an Argentinian, Uh, Sicilian. I knew uh, he was a jeweler. I knew uh, he liked wines from Argentina. I knew he liked impressionist art. Um, He had been the subject of major investigations that had failed in years before. And I'd learned a lot about him from some of the bad guys before I met him. Um, I wanted to know the things that were of interest to him, what his likes were, what his dislikes were, uh, to determine the best way to approach him. You know, he had a collection of Rolls Royces. Um, I met them at, I, I saw them at his compound. Um, when he first came to see me, thanks to, uh, one of our, uh, informants in the case, um, guess what was parked in my, in my garage in the house, um, a Rolls Royce. And, um, as he walked in, he saw it, and I didn't know squat about Rolls Royces and I don't remember half of what I studied, but <laughs> at the time I did, you know, and, and so we had something in common right away. And, you know, I mentioned to you before that, um, Roberto kept promising me we were going to do big things and it, it would die on the vine. And I asked Alex, uh, the, the, uh, bodyguard for the capo, you know, what he did in instances like that in in his underworld life and he said oh it's simple you know i would give him a gift to bless the relationship that they just agreed to and, and you know now you know he's committed and i'm thinking to myself yeah the government's going to authorize like a 19 inch black and white tv as the gift that i can give alcano that's going to be really impressive so um but he goes let me show you the kind of thing this is alex telling tell me he, so he goes into his bedroom he had a uh safe that was probably four feet high and he took out a, uh, a jewelry box and he opened it. It was a Paisley jewelry box. He opened it up and in it was a gold cross. It was solid gold, quarter inch, probably two and a half to three inches high, two inches wide with diamonds studded on the front. He goes, that's the kind of thing he goes, this is probably worth 25 G's. I said, um, uh that ain't gonna fly. <laughs> he goes, I'll tell you what. And and now this guy could have spent the rest of his life in jail. He wound up going in the witness protection program. Um, he wound up doing five years. He came out. And this is 10 years after that. He goes, you know, you never lied to me. Um check with your boss, see if there's a way that we can work something out between myself and your agency. And I'll loan you guys this if you lose it and you don't recover it at the end, put me in for $25,000 reward. I'm not looking to make a bajillion dollars. And I said, well, let me go see him." So I went and I sat down with the ASAC and I said, listen, here's an idea. <laughs> and I drove, I wrote up this, uh, this loan agreement that actually passed muster with general counsel. And we got the, that, that, uh, that, Cross.
0: That's very surprising.
1: I know. So I'm still in customs at the time. So and they were. That was at a time when they were um, a little loose and fast. Mm-hmm. Um, DEA would have been a different story. So now picture this: um, I flew Roberto and myself uh, and a female agent who was playing the role of my supposed fiance. In the Cessna two citation, after he's been to the house, after he's met Alex, after he's seen the Rolls Royce, we land at Teeterboro Airport. There's a um, limo at the bottom of the stairs. We get in. Um, I have a pre-arranged um, conversation with the driver um, because I'm from Staten Island. I had all kinds of you know New York stories we could talk about, and and the he knew he knew I was from that town. And and um, so we get we go to Wall Street we walk uh, up uh, we go, go to 120 Broadway we walk into the the brokerage firm um, the guy who runs the brokerage firm is a guy who um, was formerly associated with one of the families he you know and embraces me Bobby I haven't seen you in a long time blah 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 we it's pre 9 11 we have a, they have a seat on the New York Stock Exchange so. I can take them on the floor of the stock exchange. I take Roberto on the floor. I used to work in a bank and I used to work in a brokerage firm. So I talk somewhat about how the markets work and all this other garbage. We then go from there to a social club that you either have to be uh, a, a member of organized crime or a politician or both to be a member. And, and we, we go to the social club and then from there I take him to his apartment, which is right by the UN. And as we get out of the limo um, and he says goodbye, I grab the door and and I say, Roberto, I need to speak with you privately. We get outside. So now I'm d- going to do my best uh, Vito Corleone or Michael Corleone. And, um, and I said, Roberto, I, you know, I, I've got to ask you something. You've said we're partners. Yes, of course we are. You said we trust each other totally. Yes, we do. You said we're going to do this. We're going to do that. Yes, yes, I promise you we will. I said, well, if we've come to that point, there's a tradition in my family to bless these types of relationships because once we make them, we not only are willing to do anything and everything for one another, we're willing to die for one another. And if you're ready to make that commitment, I have a gift for you from from my group. And he opens it up. He's a jeweler. He has a downtown LA high-end jewelry store. He looks at it and he's like, my God, you, you shouldn't have, this is, this is just unbelievable. And, um, and thank you so much. And I said, you know, okay. Um, the other thing is don't ever talk in front of her about business. I pointed to the car, um, family and business stay apart. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, I know that he's a very religious guy. Hard to imagine, but he's very religious. We did not work on Easter. We did not work during Christmas. Um, so, Fast forward. Now, of course, we're doing all kinds of business together. Fast forward to the takedown. Um, he's given me so much information that we we know that more than a ton of Coke came in. Um, it gets delivered, controlled delivery to the warehouse where he's got it going. He comes to the warehouse and... I told everybody he was there in Argentina when they packed it. So if you disrupt it very much, he's going to know. And he, later on, when I debriefed him, he cooperated. Later on, when I debriefed him, he said, Bob, I walked into the warehouse. I immediately knew. He goes, the guys who were in there who were moving the boxes, I'd never seen before. Not they They all spoke English too good. They had hands like pillows. There was no way that these guys did that type of stuff. So that's why I slowly walked toward the door and ran my butt off, jumped in a cab. There was a, f- a whole thing trying to <laughs> catch him. They finally catch him. And, um, and so now uh, he gets arrested. That gets seized. He's um, in the tombs for four days and his wife calls me and says, Roberto has a, a message for you. And I said, really, what? And, um, we had a way of communicating through codes, pay phones. And, and then I eventually met with her and she said, um, Roberta's message is that he feels you're the only one he can trust and he wants you to take over. And I said, what do you mean take over? She goes, well, here's a list of the distributors, how much they're holding, what they owe us, um, we need to get money to the lawyers and we'd like your help to pay the suppliers. So <laughs> I said, "Sure, <laughs> no problem." So for the last thirty days, uh, for for the listeners who have seen um, the movie Austin Powers, um, I became Mini Me um, in in Roberto's uh, step, and, and our guys got to pick up money from his distributors, got them all on tape. Uh, we at the end uh, got to um, have at the same time of a fake wet a fake wedding organized. For the other guys to come and get arrested, we uh, told the suppliers that we had four hundred thousand for them, but they had to come uh, to Tampa to pick it up, and and they did, and so they got knocked down, and a bunch of guys from from the bank um, and some traffickers got knocked down at the, the country club, and a couple, a lot of other people got arrested around the uh, around the U.S., um, and, and I think it was a success because. Um, We had the bodies, you know, we had the bodies and ultimately the demise of a bank, um, ultimately fines and forfeitures that accumulated to 600 million. Um, And bank officers who went to jail uh, for the longest sentence was 12 years. Doesn't sound like a lot, but when you're a banker and you're used to living the great life, 12 years is a long time. And, And that got them to cooperate. We did search warrants at, uh, many of the bank's locations around the world, and then sat down for months with the bank officers and the records. So they walked us through everything, um, that they did. And, um, and you know, this, there was a plan that, that's the good thing here. And it's something important to know, you know, there was a written operational plan and every, um, you know, it, there was a lot of management oversight. Um, IRS did the, uh, auditing constantly of the money uh, that was there um and we we wound up every 3 months we got everybody together every case agent every undercover agent every group supervisor and every prosecutor and we held a mini Appalachia conference um and we got everybody together Everybody talked with one another. They got to meet one another. You weren't dealing with a voice on the other end of the phone. Everybody got to understand what each other's plans were and listen, brothers and sisters don't always get along perfect, but in the end, they know their brothers and sisters. And I think with all the perils of running this type of an operation, which every operation like this is going to face, um, I think the team did a pretty darn good job. Um, in, in making sure that we, we achieved the best that we possibly could, while we had to at times do things that some of us weren't the
0: happiest with. But that's life. That's life. <laughs> well, Bob, I, I really appreciate you taking your time today to come and talk about. And, and I know you have a lot more stories, and we could probably go on for hours and hours about your role undercover. Um, so just tell us a little bit about your, your book. Your new book coming out, how people can purchase it or even your old book. And, uh, and I know your business is called uh, KYC Solutions. So let us know how we could get, if somebody wanted your services or give them some information on how they could get in touch with you. Sure. Um, uh, that would be to my website,
1: which is pretty easy. It's my na- first and last name with no space. So it's Robert Mazur, M A Z U R.com. And on that, uh, there's a contact page and you can send me an email through the, the web system. And once I know that who I'm dealing with, um, we'll, we'll get online with one another. Um, uh, my book, uh, the infiltrator was published in 10 languages, um, and is the basis for the infiltrator film, uh, starring Brian Cranston. There were some other great actors in that John Leguizamo played my partner. He did it unbelievably great job and Benjamin Bratt played uh, one of the bad guys did a great job. Um so you can find that just uh actually on my website on the page for the book and for the movie you can go to a drop down box and it gives you all the different uh, places amazon.com and um all the other book companies through which you can acquire the um uh, the book and and the film. Um KYC Solutions, primarily what I do, um, is is now not being done (laughs) due to COVID. Um, But I was um, traveling globally, um, speaking on a very regular basis, Um, more to the private sector than to law enforcement, but certainly uh, I'd say 15, 20% to to law enforcement. Um, But I I got the opportunity to see parts of the world that I never thought I would see. I, I try to help. People who uh, work in the private sector in the anti-money laundering compliance world um, to ho- understand how to identify risk within their institution. Um, to tell them about what red flags they should be looking for, uh, some of the newer trends that are going on, some of the newer cases that are going on, some of the newer geographic areas uh, that are increased with risk, um, and I try to to help them to understand that what they're doing. Um, has a lot to do with the safety of citizens around the world because there is now a very, very close alliance between the Mexican and Medellin cartel and the Colombian cartels and terrorists worldwide. Uh, they know that this is a way to make money. Other things that I do um, uh, beside that is uh, consulting work for uh, institutions to help them to improve their anti-money laundering compliance programs. And lastly, I do um, expert witness work, and I'm proud to say that I've uh, been engaged by uh, a law firm that is uh, filed a, a lawsuit against some of the biggest banks in the world that um, knowingly uh, banked uh, Mexican cartels, and, and in particular, Los Zetas, who they knew as part of what they did for a, a living was to kill people, and that they have unfortunately killed Um, Americans. And so um, we represent um, many people whose families have now suffered um, through their loss um, at the hands of the cartels. And we believe that it's um, logical that if you intentionally had facilitated the success of that cartel, knowing full well that they were going to be likely to be killing people, you're responsible for the deaths of of our citizens, and we're working hard to help the families um, of those American Americans um, uh, to get some type of relief from the horror that they've gone through.
0: Well, Bob, I really appreciate it. Again, it was an excellent story. Uh, this is why you're one of the top-notch guys in DEA, uh, and I I know our listeners were well educated about uh, working undercover with these complex issues of money laundering. And again, thanks once again.
1: Forletta Investigates.
0: Thank you for listening to Forletta Investigates. Subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You could follow Forletta Investigative Security Consultants on LinkedIn and at FCIS LLC on Facebook. And if you are in need of investigative or security services, please go to fcisllc.com.